The text for the sermon this day is taken from 1 John chapter 4, specifically these words. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus is Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That's the text. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In a little bit, all of you will be asked a question. Actually, several questions. You'll be asked, do you believe in God the Father? And you will say, yes, I believe in God the Father Almighty. You'll be asked, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And you'll say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. You will be asked, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And you'll say, yes, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church. But the question is, is when you say those words... Are you going to be making a confession to a dead God or a living God? Now let me explain what I mean by that. Back in the late 1800s, there was a German philosopher. His name is Friedrich Nietzsche. He was an atheist. And he was looking at Christians around Europe. He looked at the way they lived and they acted. And he compared it to what they confessed, and he finally quoted a very, fairly famous quote, God is dead, we have killed him. Because he looked at Christians who were claiming they believed in God, but lived as if he did not exist. And so he said, why don't you just admit it, he is dead, you've killed him. The thing is, is even though he is most certainly not trying to do any favors to Christianity, there was elements of truth in what he was observing. And it's something that he could say even to this day. So for example, if you wanted to see how there is a dead God in the way you are living, in the way you are confessing, if somebody were to ask you this question, why do you believe in God? How would you answer? Now you might say, well, God, he has made a big difference in my life. I get a lot of comfort out of believing in God. Or perhaps somebody asks you the question, why do you go to church? Well, it makes me feel good, it allows me to do something good. Do you notice who the emphasis is on on both of those answers? You. Now, while all those things may be true of you, that is still confessing to a dead God. Because literally any religion could say that God, that they, literally any belief system could say that they, that it changed their lives. You don't have to be a Christian to have a changed life. There are atheists who said that their lives were changed because they rejected God. So it's not a very good argument. But instead, if you said, well, I got this book here. Actually, it's a collection of, 60, a collection of books 
which have all these documented events revolving around this guy named Jesus who lived in Judea about 2,000 years ago. And I could compare it even to external evidences around the same time period. And I could say without doubt that this is true. And so I listened to that guy. Guess what? The evidence goes to him, not you. Why do you go to church? Because God commanded it. Do not neglect the gathering together of believers. When Jesus said, do, as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. When he says, as often, what does he expect you to do in regards to the Lord's Supper? To do it how? Often. When you don't do it often, you are rebelling against Jesus himself. We do it because he commanded it. And not only that, but because this thing is called the divine service. So those who went to Camp Okaboji heard that phrase. Divine means God. So it literally means the divine service is the place where God serves you with his word, with his sacrament. It is a con already in this service, you've been served by hearing absolution. You have been served by hear, being, hearing the scriptures. In a little bit, you're going to hear that you're going to be served by receiving the Lord's Supper. And at the end, you'll be served as you hear the words of the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. He is serving you. He is giving you his good gifts. But when we confess to only our personal opinions or personal emotions, we are confessing to a dead God. Now I go to this type of a sermon on a confirmation for a reason. There is a story of a, of a church council meeting. The church was having troubles with bats in the church. And they're trying to figure out how to get rid of them. Well, one elderly member rose his hand and said, well, why don't we just confirm them? That usually seems to get rid of them. The thing is, is for one, it's okay for Lutherans to laugh. Isaac, the name Isaac means laughter, so it's okay. But it also reflects the truth. We know it. Christians disappear after they have confirmed, been, gone through confirmation. For many, the next time you'll see them is at graduate recognition, after that a wedding, and after that probably a funeral. And the pastor's going to stand there preaching, praying that that, kid, that person still had faith. Because there is no evidence of it. That, but when you confess, see the thing is, is when you confess to this God, and you're confessing that he is your God. God, by definition, means he created everything. And it also means that he is your Lord, your master. He is the one who drives you in everything you do. And by the way, parents, for some reason, think that once their kids are confirmed, that all of a sudden they're off the hook. They don't have to make their kids do, go to church. They don't have to make them learn about scripture. They, they, that's now up to their choice. 
That's the way many parents go. But think about this. When your, kid, when you're done at eighth, when your kids go to high school, when these all go to high school, are you going to leave it up to them whether or not they go to school? Or whether or not they do their homework? Whether or not they eat right? Whether or not they go to bed at a certain time? Whether or not they obey your curfew? If you have all of those rules, but being in God's word, committing to the vow you are about to make, is not a requirement, you're communicating that your God is dead. Because he is not worthy to be at the center of your life. He is not worthy to be instructed that your children are to be in his word, in his sacrament. That is a dead God. In our culture, and by the way, there was a movie that came out a few years ago. It's called God's Not Dead. Sorry if you liked it, but I'm going to step on it a little bit. In the movie, it eventually says that God is not dead. That's the whole theme in response to Friedrich Nietzsche's quote. The problem with the movie is the movie did not appear to understand Nietzsche's quote. Because I'm pretty certain if Nietzsche were alive and he watched it, he would have come out saying, thank you for proving my point. Because when people asked, would ask the main character, do you believe in God? His answer was, well, I believe that he is as real as you and me. He just made God a personal preference. And we do this very often in our worship lives. We make worship about our preferences. As if that God has to package the gifts that he had bought for us on the cross in a certain way, otherwise we don't like it. So for example, just here's one. Service length. There are those who insist that worship must be exactly 60 minutes. If it is 10 minutes over, boy, we're going to have problems. Now, let's take this into another part of your life. You go to a football game, and there's an extra quarter. You go, oh, I'm going to go talk to that coach. I cannot believe they went into extra time in that game. I had other things to do. Or there's an extra inning in a baseball game. How many of you will complain about that? Or you go to a concert. And the, ba the band comes out and plays a couple more songs. Are you going to get mad at them that they played a few extra? But somehow or another, God is not worthy of extra time. Because he is ultimately not much of a God. If he is not worthy of extra time, if you grumble because there's extra time, you're confessing to either a dead or a dying God. But you see, our God is living. Our God is a God of history. He was a, our God became human flesh. Born under the reign of King Herod. Born during the time of Caesar Augustus. Two people who you could find an abundance of historical record about them. He was born in a town of Bethlehem. You could go to that town and visit it. He was born just outside of Jerusalem. 
And when he grew up, he was baptized at the Jordan River by a man named John the Baptist, who was attested to even beyond the scriptures. He was put on trial. And by the way, you could find his arrest warrant in the Talmud. He was put on trial by a name by Pontius Pilate, who was extremely well attested to in history. He was crucified, which you could find evidence of Christus or Christ being crucified. You could find it in Pliny the Younger, Josephus, Tacitus, and of course, the 27 books of the New Testament and the writings of the, of the church fathers. All of it is a matter of historical record. And it's also a matter of historical record that those who confessed that they saw Jesus risen from the dead died confessing it. Because they would rather die and meet their Jesus than say that they lied because they didn't lie. How many people are going to suffer excruciating death for something they know to be a lie? The disciples knew it was true and they faced whatever was thrown at them. Because Jesus is not a dead God, he is a living God. And that means that when you were baptized, you know, there's a reason why you're wearing these white robes. It's pointing back to your baptism. When you were baptized, you came as poor, miserable sinners. You came dead. And our, you were, the water was poured upon you, as the pastor said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you were declared a child of God, and you received a robe of righteousness. You received a new identity. And then you were, you've been instructed in these last two years, and all of it has a purpose. So that you may learn to test the spirits. Because as I just went through, there are many bad spirits in our age. The one I just talked about is one that's been in existence for hundreds of years. But you are living in a world that is no friend of Christianity. You're living in a world that if you serve the living God, there is a risk to that one. You serve the dead God, that's easy. Serving the dead God is just like talking about your favorite flavor of ice cream. No one's going to get mad at you because you like Rocky Road ice cream. But people might be mad at you if you get bold and start confessing that Jesus is the Christ and he is the one and only way to salvation. People get mad at that one. But you're going to confess that you would rather face death than walk away from this faith. You're going to confess that you're going to remain steadfast and by the way, parents, grandparents, you once confessed those same words. And so what a reminder for what you once confessed. The reason why you did sermon reports, make sure you went to church for one, which sadly that we have to do something like that. But secondly, is so that way you can learn to test the spirits. Look for law, look for gospel. The reason that you had to memorize those parts of the catechism is because if, a, if somebody comes into the church and starts teaching things that are strange, you will know it instantly. You will say, hey, the small catechism says this. Stick to it. If you don't have it memorized, you cannot challenge a false teacher. 
You will be prey to them. That is why you learned what you learned. The devil attacks Christians. The thing he wants more than anything in the world is for you to reject Christ and walk in his way. I know this is all harsh stuff, but it's reality. We never read the, one of the things we never read is the preface to the Luther's small catechism. I really wish we did, but if you, if you get congregation at prayer, I have three paragraphs in there from it. But here's the reason why we confess to this. Because yes, he is the living God. He did rise from the dead. And the reality is, is that as we are in a world where we just got done with a pandemic, while well, we're still getting through a pandemic, we have lived in a world, you'll see war, you'll have, there are shootings around this country. Who knows what your future is going to see? And you're going to live in uncertainty. Think about this, September will be 20 years since 9-11. How many of you remember that day, watching those buildings coming down? What came, gave you, what is the thing, do you know where people flock to? The churches. Because they're suddenly reminded this world is temporary. All the things in this world are nice and neat, but there's going to be a point every single one of you is going to face a challenge. And what's your answer going to be to the living God or the dead one? The living one, he makes you alive. That's why you confess to him. He makes you alive. Truly living. True life is in Christ. Freedom from death is in Christ. You are his child, beloved child. And yes, he loves you more than you will ever know. He walks with you, and every time that we are stubborn and walk away, he keeps pulling you back. And the greatest thing about our God is if you, come, if you wander, and maybe it's many years down, you come back, you'll say, come, my child, receive the gifts I prepared for you. He is always there waiting with open arms. To that God, serve him. Be in his word. Be in worship. It should not be years before I see you again in here. It should be ideally a week. Receive God's word. Receive his sacrament. Because it is blessing beyond anything you get in your life. This moment this is one of the greatest moments you've had in your life since you were baptized. You are receiving God himself. You are united to heaven. Any of you, do any of you have somebody you love that has died? Confirmands. Raise your hand if there's someone that you love that has died in the faith. You are united to them when you take that supper. They are the church militant. They're the church triumphant. You're the church militant. That is a reason to be here. Heaven and earth meet. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keeping the one true faith, the life everlasting. Amen.